Good afternoon. This is a podcast runs through it. And I was about to say, coming to you from Soundcolor Studios in downtown Livingston, but it's not. We're all at home, and we're recording this from various places in the in the city. Uh, as we are following the safe distancing, I guess, to an extreme. And uh, we want to be sure that people understand that this is an, uh, a broadcast, an episode that will cover coronavirus issues. I'm Nelson King. I'm here with Dixie Hart. Hi, Dixie. Hello, Nelson. And we're all doing this from home. Right. Because that's the thing to do. We're practicing social distancing. And so this is, this is our very first remote podcast. And uh, it's kind of strange not all being in the same space in that in sound color studios which we all have grown rather fond of but um instead we're all here in our own homes and this is our our new way of doing things and for how long as long as we need to that's right and the end comes when the end comes (laughs) that's right and in the meantime we're gonna stick with the protocols. We're going to practice social distancing and we're going to wash our hands a lot and we're not going to touch our faces and we're going to wear masks when we go out. In other words, do what is required of citizens at this point. Today, we're going to interview Rafe Graybill, who is the governor's chief legal counsel and who sits with the governor and works with the governor on a lot of the issues that we we deal with every day given the coronavirus crisis, such things as the stay-at-home order, travel restrictions, the closing of the schools and businesses, suspending foreclosures, changes to the election procedures, all of these things he works on directly and has worked with the governor and the governor's task force on the coronavirus crisis. One thing I want to mention uh, about Rafe, Rafe Graybill, is that he is running for Attorney General for the state of Montana. And uh, we have interviewed him. So if you're inter- interested in learning some more about what he thinks and his background, it's episode number 17. Episode 17, uh, a podcast runs through it. And that was February the uh, 17th, 2020. And we also want to talk about why we're doing all of this and remind people. Um, When we interview Rafe a little bit later, uh, I want to make it clear that we're not going to be asking him all kinds of questions across the board. We want to stick with things that he is personally involved with. I'll give you an example. I know everybody has heard a lot about the testing issue. Are we doing enough testing? Who's doing the testing? What kind of tests are there? who's interpreting them. Uh, This is not an area that is specific to him. He hasn't worked on it. So we will be looking for somebody to interview later who can speak to that issue. But in this case, we're going to be interviewing Rafe on the issues that he knows about and trying to get at some of the motivations. What what are the processes, mental and, and otherwise, involved in coming up with decisions like closing the schools or closing a business? all of which have, you know, a great deal of impact on the way we live and on our economy and the medical situation. Right. Um, and I would like to point out that um, on at this point in time, uh, this is, uh, we're recording this on April 6th of 2020. And um, currently worldwide, there's 1,343,096 cases of COVID-19. And so far worldwide, we've suffered 74,513 deaths. In the United States, we have 364,059 cases, and we've suffered 10,792 deaths. And in Montana, we have 319 cases and have suffered six deaths. So this is something that, um, you know, we're we're all in it together. Uh, we'll be dealing with this for a while. And um, the best thing that we can all do is take care of each other by following the protocols that we all have become very familiar with. And I'm happy to say that it appears that most Montanans understand and are you know, 
going along with it because that's what keeps everybody, yourself included, healthy. Exactly. Exactly. Take care of yourselves and take care of your neighbors. So let's uh, get into the interview. Good afternoon. Rafe, are you there? I am. How are you? Uh, where are you located today? I am at my office in the Capitol building in Helena. Okay. So he went to work, folks. <laughs> but, and, I, uh, and I cannot stress enough how important it is that if you are not an essential worker, you should not go to work. The most important thing we can all do is stay at home, wash our hands, not touch our faces. Um, and I would not uh, take my example as the example to follow on going in. I am only in on the orders of the governor. Um, but if I could be, I'd be home. Yep, exactly. And that's kind of the, what we would expect. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Rafe about his role, but in a sense, the in general approach of the governor and the state to the various elements of the crisis. Um, Rafe, of course, being a lawyer and also um, at this point also running for uh, attorney general of the state of Montana. Um, you kind of have a long history with looking at the legal side of things, and we, we kind of want to stick with that this afternoon and deal with the, the process and some of the issues that you've had to work with uh, to give people kind of an insight to, okay, the government says we're going to lock down or have everybody stay in place. Well, what does that mean? How did you get to that decision? What elements are in there? Uh, who was involved? What's the timing? All that kind of sort of thing. Um, I'm hoping we can give people some flavor of how decisions are made and how they're promulgated and, and so forth. Because, frankly, this is all new for most yeah. of us. We have never seen this before. And there's a, but besides what you would expect in confusion, there's just a kind of, well, how do they do that? Or why do they do that? Or, you know, these kind of questions are coming up. So Right, right. Like for, well, for instance, like maybe we could start with um, how did you come about deciding or how did the governor come around deciding uh, to close the schools? Um, what was the process in that decision? Every, every one of these decisions has been driven by the goal of reducing the spread of new infections. And I can say, watching Governor Bullock on the inside, each of these has been a really, really um, somber and weighty decision on him and, and throughout the process. We have been monitoring the COVID situation for months now, uh, watching as it originated in Asia, began to sprout up in western Washington, and then began to take hold throughout the United States. And closing schools was one of the early first steps that we did because it was so important to make sure that schools were not a vector of infection. That was the first step, obviously, as, as we can talk about today, it was not the last step that we took, but making sure that um, environments like schools where people congregate, there's a lot of close contact. Anyone that's been through school knows that it's a natural breeding ground for things like colds and flu. Uh, we wanted to make sure we didn't add COVID-19 into that mix, and that, that was why on the 15th of March, it was one of the first things the governor did that affected the daily lives of Montanans. Before that, the governor declared a state of emergency. Prior to that, the governor established a COVID-19 task force that largely resembles what we did when Ebola came around in 2014. It was a similar cast of characters involving folks who focus on unemployment, folks that work on public health, the military, the Division of Disaster and Emergency Services. So there was a structure set up to begin to think about the kinds of questions that a pandemic or that an outbreak of communicable disease might require. And schools was among the first sort of public decisions, but there was a whole framework in place thinking about this, this outbreak and this disease long before that. Yeah, Rafe, could you, just for the, the learning process for the people who are listening to this, explain a little bit of what the task force is, how it was constituted, how many people, how you meet, who makes the decisions, that kind of thing. So the, t the task force was called together by Governor Bullock, and this happened earlier on in the process. And it, it's composed of a range of different stakeholders in state government, all of whom cover different aspects of responding to an outbreak of communicable disease. So one of those aspects 
is, for example, impacts on the state budget and the ability of the state to provide emergency funding, move money around. So the budget director is on it. The, the Department of Labor is on this task force because they handle all sorts of issues around professional licensing, issues around um, unemployment is administered by the Department of Labor. I think the, the perhaps the most important members or sort of the central members um, are folks out of what in Montana we call the Department of Military Affairs or DMA. And the Department of Military Affairs in Montana is the agency that runs both the National Guard and all of our response capabilities there. It's also the agency that runs Disaster and Emergency Services, or DES. DES is the full-time agency in the state of Montana that thinks about and plans around these kinds of problems. It plans around crises. It's DES who's on the front lines during fire season in Montana, coordinating the state's response. It's DES who's there when there are floods in the spring, when there's winter storms, when there are droughts. Um, and DES also has for a very long time thought about less common but high impact issues like an outbreak of communicable disease. And so we're very lucky that we have this quiet group of professionals in our state who have been thinking about this problem for a long time and we're ready to spring into action once we knew the warning signs were there. So well, roughly actually... how, many pe- how many people are involved uh, altogether, just off the top of your head? Well, the task force has probably a dozen or so members. I wouldn't quote me on that. And th- those are sort of leadership members. There is then a level below that, a working group of folks who work t- day in, day out um, on the issue. And, and depending on how you count that, um, it, could be, it could be a whole range of different people at agencies. Um, and there are hundreds of people that work at the Department of Military Affairs and at DES and across state agencies. So um, there's a lot of resources in Montana ready for emergency response, and we're very lucky that they could spring into place so quickly. So, for example, with the schools, where would that start? Where would that decision start? Who? I assume you're, you're going to gather some information, do some pro and con. Uh, who does that, and how is it brought to the group? A lot of what we do is initially we get intelligence from other states and we see what other states are doing. And and Montana is fortunate that so much of this pandemic started elsewhere so we could see what the early stages looked like before they got here. And so we saw back in early March that states like Washington were beginning to close schools. Other hotspots in the East Coast were closing schools as a first step. And we could we could take from the take from the experience of other states what worked well, what didn't worked well, didn't work well, and use that to inform the decisions made. On this particular issue, because it is an outbreak of communicable disease, there is an outsized role for the public health division at DPHHS. That's the Department of Public Health and Human Services. And they employ a full-time staff of epidemiologists, medical doctors, including the chief medical officer of the state who conduct what's called epidemiological surveillance, means basically watching the way that disease is spread, and who make professional recommendations to us based on what to do. And it was in consulting healthcare professionals, public health professionals, and disaster and emergency services professionals that the governor decided that starting on the 15th, it it, it did make sense and it was important to close schools in Montana to stop the growth of new infections. So within this this group of, in this case, with the schools, is there somebody or a report by the committee or whatever that makes the actual recommendation and sends that to the governor for decisions? I, I would describe it as a more fluid process than that. It, it, there are some kinds of decisions that get routed up in very formalized ways, memos written, things like that. Um, something like the school's would grow out of a range of different meetings and discussions involving the governor, public health leadership, and other stakeholders involved. One, one piece I should add to this is the key, the key legal component that makes all of this possible is the declaration of an emergency, right? So in, in normal times, the governor could not just, on an order, declare schools closed, ask people to stay at home, uh, impose quarantine on travelers. Those are those are all sort of things we don't do in the normal course of business. But by saying, I have determined as governor there is an emergency right now, that puts into play a whole range of different legal authorities in what's called Title 10 of the Montana Code. 
And for, for decades, the same framework has been around, which enables the governor to do a whole range of things during an emergency that are not available outside of an emergency. The most important one when it comes to the outbreak of communicable disease is the governor has a range of public health powers to help stop the spread of disease. One of those is the power to control occupancy of buildings, which can extend to schools, um, to control and correct conditions of public health importance at places where people gather. And that's an actual technical statutory term where people gather. So that could be movie theaters, businesses. Um, This is all in the context of stopping the outbreak of a disease. So those legal tools are there, but he has to declare an emergency first before they come into play. And that's something the governor did back um, early to mid-March, declared an emergency. Then once the president finally declared a federal emergency, we aligned ours with his, so they run on the same timeline. Right. And I see the, I believe the governor declared the state of emergency on March 13th. And so what, what is, what's the data that, that was being used to make that determination at that particular point? On schools? On the state of emergency. The state of emergency was, well, the biggest data point was that we, we began to see COVID-19 infections increase around the United States. And we saw the, the federal and the state response frameworks come into place. And based on what we know from those public health experts, it was only a matter of time before COVID infections would come to Montana. And it's actually interesting in the law, um, there are disasters and there are emergencies. And a disaster is when something has happened, like an outbreak of disease. An emergency is something is imminently about to happen. And so the law actually expects the governor to declare a state of emergency when he or she anticipates that one of the conditions spelled out in statute, which includes an epidemic, is on its way to Montana. So knowing full well that COVID was coming to Montana, the governor made the decision, now is the time to get all of our resources National Guard resources um, into place so that we can begin to respond and get results soon. Because you know, as you all have seen, acting quickly and acting on the front end of an epidemic is so incredibly important to making to controlling its scope and its severity. Now, again, I want to reiterate. I think you've made the point that the essence of what you need to do is keep the virus from spreading, which is really means keeping people from contacting each other and spreading it, right? Absolutely. So whatever you do, that's the ultimate goal of it is in some way keeping people from spreading the virus by contacting other people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Absolutely. there is, I think most people are now aware that there's a trade-off here, that by let's say closing schools or closing businesses, you have an economic impact. At what point does that calculation or does that dynamic enter into the conversation? And I'm assuming that even the governor has to weigh doing this or not doing this has medical impact, but it also has an economic impact. How do you deal with that? Well, it's an incredibly important consideration. And as I said at, at the top, I know personally these were all heavy decisions for the governor. No one runs for governor uh, excited about the idea of closing schools or closing businesses. And when you make decisions like that, it really is in the context of watching other states come to the same conclusions before they have the opportunity that you have now in front of you, right? The governor of Montana was able to make these decisions at the early side of an epidemic, knowing that it could make a difference. And not to diminish other diseases, but COVID-19 is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous infection. It's one that has a morbidity that is far, far higher than seasonal influenza. So making these decisions is is a matter of life and death. And yes, business vitality is important. and, And we've done a whole range of things that we can to try to make sure that the business impact is lessened. But at the end of the day, the governor's first and foremost priority is protecting um, public health and human safety, and human safety comes first. By doing these things when we did, fewer people will get this infection and fewer people will die. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of obvious now when you look at um, you know where Montana is right now as far as flattening the curve, it looks like the mitigation in Montana 
has been really effective, um, but also at the same time, um, the indications are that we need to maintain all of these protocols for at least another two weeks or so. Is that is that basically what you're seeing? Well, I'm aware of a, of a lot of different public modeling, uh, some of it optimistic around the early measures that we've done. I know that Governor Bullock is, is taking it two weeks at a time. <clears throat> and so the, the last set of orders we extended through the 10th, the governor announced last week it is likely those will get extended another two weeks. I think one thing we don't want to do is let up too early. And that's both on the public policy side of not relaxing restrictions before it's appropriate. And it's also on each of us individually to make sure, you know, we, we can see some good news and that's important, but we want to make sure that we don't, in our own personal lives, go back to engaging in the kinds of activities that could spread this disease. So there, I think there's still there's still a long road ahead, and and I I commend the governor for taking taking an approach that takes it one step at a time, and we make sure we see where the infections are going in our state before making decisions that are way way in advance. Well, yeah, I think I think in Montana, I think we're very fortunate to you know have a governor who's making his decisions based on on factual science, and um, you know and be very quick to uh, put measures in action that are to mitigate this, the effects of, of uh, COVID-19. But I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm wondering about too is with the CARES Act, uh, the provisions that have been uh, appropriated for small businesses and, and uh, unemployment insurance, um, can you speak to anything about how that's rolling out across the state? Are people um, that need those funds being able to, are they being able to access them? Well, we, we, not yet, as far as I understand. And we certainly want the feds to move faster on this. It's, it's one thing to promise relief, and it's another to actually have it show up. So at the state side, we are fully ready to implement the CARES Act when it comes down. But we need the federal government, and particularly the Treasury Department, to make sure that those provisions are, are rolling forward. In other words, you need to see the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Talk is good. Money's better. <laughs> yep. Um, the question I have, uh, I think we have kind of a list of things that you have personally worked on. Uh, the stay-at-home order, travel restrictions, school and business closures, um, the order in which you do things like foreclosures and legal, what, what's legal with foreclosures and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the, the legal framework that you have to use when you do these things? Uh, I'm sure that almost anything you do could be challenged in court by somebody. Uh, and obviously you don't want to do that unless you, you know, have to, but how do you deal with these legal issues? That that's right. And everything we have done, we have, we have done, well, we do all the research first, obviously, and it's all directed towards responding to the immediate needs of the emergency. So you, you, you could imagine there are a range of things people have asked us for we have not done. The things we have done are all within the framework of Title X, this, this set of laws that we've had for decades that say the kinds of powers conferred on the governor to respond to an emergency. And it all comes back to how do you, what, what actions can you take that right now um, promote response to the emergency, protect public health, and protect human safety. So, for, for example, the, the elections order. This is one of the few orders that we have done that looks forward um, more than a few weeks at a time. Reason for that is, in Montana, you know, you can't just turn around and have an election tomorrow. Um, there's a whole range of deadlines involved in putting an election together, everything from certifying who's on the ballot to printing a ballot to getting envelopes out to counties. There's a lot involved. And we were approached by the County Clerks Association who said, we're going to need to know what's going to happen if this thing's still around in June. And if this thing still is around in June, we can't have hundreds of people congregating in the same place the way you might normally see at an election. That's a hotbed for infection. And, and we don't want people to get killed by exercising their right to vote. So working very closely with the county clerks, our job was to match the correct policy that would ensure that voting is safe with the kind of legal authorities the governor has. And we you know, we won't go past that. 
And we came up with a solution I'm, I'm quite proud of, and I think Montana should be quite proud of, that is a combination of allowing counties to opt into mail voting, but if they opt into mail voting, they also have to guarantee 30 full days of in-person voting, early voting. And there were two goals there. Right now, as you guys know, a large number of Montanans already vote by mail effectively. They get absentee ballots, and so the ballots get mailed to them, and then they can send back. But for anyone that doesn't proactively go out and get an absentee ballot, you've got to still go in. And that's why we get you know, a large portion of people going in on the last day of the election. By shifting to all mail, but still keeping in-person polls open, it shifts the default. And so you don't have to do anything on your own other than register to vote in order to receive a ballot. But if going to the polls is still important to you, you still have that opportunity, but you don't all have to go on the same day. And we, we saw this as something that fits neatly with the governor's authorities to suspend statutes and promote human safety, and that also was the right policy of, of promoting the franchise, preserving the right to vote, but expanding those opportunities so that we don't see the kinds of crowding that can be so dangerous in an epidemic. Let me just repeat that so that, or at least summarize what you just said, which is basically Montana voters, whether it's the primary and I assume the general election. Just, just uh, the primary for now. Oh, just the primary for now, um, can either get absentee ballots and vote that way by mail, or you're going to have polls open, but they will be open not just one day, but several days. And people They'll can be open. So I would I would even change that around. I'd say um, if you are registered to vote now, you will not have to do anything additional. You're going to get a mail ballot. It's going to show up at your door. Uh, whether you registered absentee or not, a mail ballot will come to your door. If you want to vote that mail ballot, you just mark your mark your votes, plop it in the mail, send it back. And actually, Governor Bullock said that the state will cover the postage on that, so you don't even have to put a stamp on it. Just put that mail ballot in the mail, send it back. But if you do want to go in, or if for whatever reason didn't get to you, the mail was slow, um, you spilled coffee on it, whatever it might be, you can still go into your county elections office for the entire 30-day period from May 8 to June 2. And at any time in that period, you can also cast an in-person ballot. And what they'll do is they'll just go to the barcode on your mail ballot, invalidate it, and say, and say uh, Nelson has voted in person now. And that's what will count. So you got 30 days to vote in person or by mail. And if you do nothing at all, it's going to come to you in the mail and be as easy as possible. So, but the final day will still be June 2nd. Yep. And, and that's that'll be effective statewide in every county, is that right? Yep. As I understand, every county, as of late last week, has decided to go this route. Excellent. Excellent. So we and, won't and have the mess that they have in Wisconsin. You will definitely not. Right, right. And and is this something that could be, uh, could be in, put in place for the general election? Should we need it when that comes around? It, it's certainly a framework that could be adopted. I really hope that we get past this pandemic and don't have to go that direction. But this is a framework that, that we designed to be able to work for a Montana election, including the primary and the general. But right now, it's just the primary. Clear enough and simple. Uh, but I'm just asking, by the way, was there any opposition to this or pretty much general no. agreement? And that's I'm really proud of how we how we did this order. It was not just the governor from on high opining certain things. It was really created by working with a whole range of stakeholders, particularly the county clerks. And we made sure that the concerns of Indian country were reflected in this order. Um, I know the county clerks reached out to Western Native Voice, for example. There's a provision in the order that says that um, counties in counties with with uh, that adjoin Indian reservations that have to have satellite offices, have to adequately fund those satellite offices. And, and this provision where the state pays for the postage, I think is incredibly important because you don't want anyone to say, well, I was going to vote, but I couldn't find a stamp. That should never be a reason someone gets denied their right to vote. So <laughs> this order came together with a lot of work by a lot of different groups, and I'm, I'm really happy with the result. Yeah, I think, I think the stamp is really a nice touch, a very nice touch. Well, it's... It indicative of details that make a difference right and i think a lot of these things legally and otherwise make that's important that somebody has to think of the details absolutely 
or it may not work as well as you want it to. And some some of these directives that we've issued are written to provide flexibility, so they don't include the details. So, for example, we had a we had an order that said local governments have flexibility to control the hours of their operation. That's something we deliberately left to local governments because they wanted to decide, you know, maybe this licensing desk is open fewer hours and this other licensing desk is open more hours. But when it comes to something that is truly statewide and as high stakes as the election, we put in the time to make sure that every little detail was something that we either specified in the order or deliberately afforded localities discretion where they needed it. Uh-huh. So you, you scrutinized all these things from uh, who's going to do it, what do they need to do it properly, and you know where do you let them make their own decision, uh, and where not. I would want to pick one example that might hasn't happened, but it could. That if you have a stay in place or stay at home order, uh, and there are travel restrictions, it, we don't have to enforce it because I think most Montanans are just doing it. But what if they didn't? Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up. This is something that we did think a lot about. And fortunately, and we're a few weeks into this now, people largely have complied, not because they're afraid that the local sheriff is going to do something to them if they don't. They're complying because they don't want to get sick, because they don't want to get their neighbors sick, their friends sick, their families sick. So there's a, there's a built-in incentive to follow all this because it, it reflects the best science that we have for how you stop this pandemic. And I think that people intuitively understand that. Now, we, we did build into these orders various enforcement mechanisms. And anytime you have a public health order, you know, a typical public health order is something like uh, this restaurant had a, had a case of food poisoning, temporarily close it, clean it. That's, a, that's sort of a workaday public health order. These are the same. They are public health orders. They're statewide. And so they can be enforced under the law by the attorney general, by a county attorney, and by the people that county attorneys work with and supervise, so county sheriffs, city police. Um, They can also be enforced by local public health. We have found in practice that where there are deviations from the order, oftentimes the easiest way to get people into compliance with the order is just a friendly conversation with local public health, a friendly conversation with local law enforcement. People are not out there generally violating the order because they want to violate the order. It's they didn't understand some provision. And once they do, people people understand that we are all in this together to keep our neighbors and our friends and our families safe. Yeah, I think we've seen the, the results of that. Most Montana cities look... Mm, how shall I say it? Controlled. <laughs> you know, there's some traffic, and there are people around, but it's limited. Uh, and I think most people are staying with the idea that you only go out when it's something like getting food, or you know, some some necessary, me- perhaps medical reason or whatever. But uh, has that been your experience? I mean, uh, what are you hearing from around the state about people's reactions to all of this? That, that is what we've been hearing with one interesting caveat. One of the activities defined as an essential activity in our order is outdoor recreation. And we are so lucky that we live in a state where you can go outside and hike and enjoy the outdoors and exercise and be totally alone, totally isolated. That's, that's a feature of Montana for many people. When many people move to Montana, uh, it's also an advantage of ours in a situation like this one, where you can still go outside, still recreate, still go on walks, provided you follow social distancing and smart practices. That's not hard to do in Montana. And so, you know, I, I, my wife and I go out often on the weekends and go on a little walk uh, around near Helena on some of the hills behind town. And that's something that's entirely consistent with the order. That's entirely consistent with public health. And for many of us, keeps our heads on straight. Uh, before we move on to uh, the, I suppose it's issues involved with how do we come out of this, um, are there any other aspects of the state action to control the coronavirus spread in, in within this state that were particularly thorny or that you needed to work on more or had legal issues or anything else you want to mention here? 
I think that there are two orders that people should really know about and take seriously beyond the stay-at-home order. One is the issue, the issues in the order we wrote about evictions, foreclosures, and disconnects. This order comes from the same basic legal principle that it's important to control the occupancy of dwellings to limit the spread of disease. And the governor really did not want to take an overly formalistic approach that said, well, you have to stay home, but then ignores the fact that you know lots of Montanans have, have suffered an economic loss as a result of COVID-19. And so this order, I think, is a really, really smart way to say, as long as you have to stay home, we're going to make sure that you have a home in which to stay. And that means saying, uh, it doesn't mean you don't have to pay your bills. It doesn't mean that you're mortgage debt is suddenly forgiven or, you're, or you're, you don't have to pay rent, but it does mean that as long as this emergency goes on and as long as you're being told stay home where you can, you're not going to get evicted, you're not going to get foreclosed on, and the kinds of essentials that make a home livable, like water, electricity, sewer, and internet, you know, think about how many people have kids at home doing distance learning, those essential services won't be disconnected while the emergency is going on and while you're being told to stay at home. And I think that that is an incredibly important except, uh, extension of the stay-at-home order. The other one I'd mentioned just real briefly deals with travel to Montana from other areas. The largest known source of new COVID-19 infections in Montana at this point is travel from somewhere else. And after a lot of thought and a lot of public health consultation and research, the governor decided that it was important to stop new inspections by saying, if you've traveled to Montana from somewhere else, and that this was also in the context of you know these news articles you probably saw where people were advertising Airbnbs and vacation rentals saying, come quarantine in Montana where it's scenic. In the context of all that, the governor said, when you arrive in Montana with an intent to stay for non-work-related reasons, you've got to self-quarantine for 14 days. And that makes sure that we are welcoming to people who return to our state, we're welcoming to people that want to visit our state, but that as they do that, they do not bring new infections of COVID at the same time. Did that apply to um, part-time residents also, or was it uh, and permanent residents that have like two that have been out of yes. the state for reasons? Yes. Okay. The, the major exception is not is work-related travel. So if you're, if you're driving a supply truck to go stock the Albertsons in Bozeman, um, that's fine. You come in, you drop off your supplies, you go. But if you rented a really nice condo at Big Sky for a screaming deal and you're leaving New York City, you've got to spend the first two weeks here in quarantine to make sure you didn't bring anything with you. Well, that's, that sounds like a very reasonable idea. Well, as I just noted, the um, total number of cases in Montana as of 430 are 319. That's up from uh, 299 this morning. And uh, we're holding at six deaths. Um, what do you think is the path that's going to be followed to, assuming that at some point we go, the number of deaths and the number of cases declines, that we are looking at somehow undoing all of this? I wish I had the answer. I really do. We're, we're taking it two weeks at a time. Um, I am not an epidemiologist. I don't play one on TV either, <laughs> but I do listen to them. And I think this is a time where listening to science, listening to medical professionals is incredibly important. Uh, what we know today is that we're not, we're not out of it yet. And we don't know where we are in the curve yet. But we do know what we can do to make sure that curve is as flat as possible, and that is following these orders, staying at home, avoiding non-essential travel. And I think it, it will still take some time to know exactly when, when these infection rates will start to wane. I do know that we're doing everything we can, and that we've made the right choices, but I don't know where the end of the tunnel is yet. What, what's your, what is your position on the uh, on? the face masks. I know the CDC has come out and recommended face masks for people to be wearing in public. Well, without being trite, I, I don't think any of us should be in the business of having opinions on CDC guidance. I think we should follow it. And I think it's, it's a smart thing to do. It makes sense. 
and uh, we want to make sure we preserve the ability for medical professionals to have those protections as well. But um, if you can sew a face mask out of cloth, wear that. And there's no harm in doing that, and the benefit is all to you and to your neighbors. You know, part of the benefit of face masks is not just people think it's all about preventing particles from coming from you breathing them in. It's also if you're symptomatic or, or asymptomatic from having particles from your lungs affect other people. So I, I think it's something you can do, and don't just do it for yourself. You're doing it for your neighbors. Right. Yeah, and a point that hasn't been mentioned all that often is it's a way of feeling a community. Yeah. That all these people who are wearing masks know about the problem, take it seriously, are trying to deal with it. And whatever yeah, the reasons, I, right? And it, it just sends a signal to the whole community, you know, that we're in this. I, I think there's, there, there's, a, there's a kind of pride in it. Um, every, every night at eight in Helena, there's a howl, a community howl to support medical workers. And my wife and I go out with our baby daughter, Genevieve, open our door, and we howl too to support medical workers. And I see everyone up and down our block doing that. There's a kind of community in that that says we are all physically distant, but I weirdly feel closer to my neighbors than I ever have before because we all share this thing every night. And I think you're exactly right, Nelson, that wearing a face mask, it, it's sort of like keeping six feet distance from people you walk by on the street. It's not rude. It doesn't say you're scared. It says that you care about that person. You take that person's life and health seriously, and you're committed to making sure that you stay healthy the same way they stay healthy. So I, I think it is a community symbol community signal, and it's an important thing for us to do. Very good. Any other um, general statements you'd like to make about Montana's response? I'm, I think people are sometimes confused that there is a state response, a federal response, and in some cases a community or county response, and they're not always clear as to who who does what to whom. Um but it obviously makes a difference. States are responding in very different ways across the country. Yeah. And at the moment, I think we can be quite proud that Montana seems to be one of the best managed states in the country. But well, we, we appreciate that. I, I would say this. I think that Montana is, is we're ahead of this right now. And I'm really happy the things that the government has done and that local governments have done to make sure that Montana's ahead of it. Ultimately, the solution will be from all of us and will be from all of our collective efforts as citizens. And I think citizenship takes on a really special meaning right now. Um, it means not just looking to the government for solutions. The government will provide guidance and will lead. But it also means leading in our own lives and making sure that we take those common sense measures like staying home where we can, limiting essential travel, using masks, uh, wearing winter gloves to the grocery store, not touching your face, something we never talked about two months ago, but not touching your face is one of the most important things you can do to protect the health and safety of those people around you right now. And I think there is a civic aspect to our own personal health right now and how it affects our community's health. And I think that Montanans broadly understand that or bought into that and it makes me really proud to be part of this state. Amen to that. Dixie, any other questions? Uh, or, Rafe, do you have any, any comments that you want to add here? No, I really appreciate you taking the time to cover this issue and um, giving me a chance to talk about how we reach these decisions and, and what motivates them. I think it's, it's important people understand that, that the governor in press conferences talks about how much he cares about Montanans. I can attest that same commitment motivates the kinds of decisions he makes behind the scenes just the same. Yeah, well, I think it's important I'd, that people understand yeah. that everything has been scrutinized and thought about. Yeah, and, I, and um, I would just like to express our gratitude, you know, on the behalf of the citizens in the state to the governor and the task force and everyone that's working on that end to uh, make sure that we're all taking care of each other and that we get through this in the best way possible. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. And one, one last thing I'd add, we, we spent a lot of time, as you said, Nelson, scrutinizing. And we make sure that the documents we put out are, are very clear, very legal. But we also write them for a lay audience as well. So, uh, the num so many times during this crisis I've said, go read the directive itself. 
And you should you should absolutely feel that you can go read these directives because they're, they're documents written for you, not for lawyers, not for courtrooms, but they're for people to see and understand how their government's reacting, what their government's doing, and what legal authorities allow them to do that. And we, we take that very, very, very seriously as we write those directives. And, and they're yours to read, digest, and respond to. I think that's going to be important for people to understand, particularly as we get to the long tail of out, coming out of this. There, I, People need to understand there's no not going to be a bell that rings and says, all right, it's all over. Resume normal right. life. That's not going to happen. It's going to be done in, in stages and piecemeal. And I think everybody's going to be experiencing this for the first time. And we won't know what to do exactly. And the government won't know what to do exactly. They're going right. to have to try things as they go along. And we have to get used to the idea. It's going to take a while. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. How often does the task force meet? Is that a once a day thing or as needed? What's your schedule on that? I, I would say almost constantly. And uh, the people that support the task force that are involved in this every day uh, are, are not working on anything else. I can tell you, I have, I mean, you mentioned at the top of this that I am also a political candidate. I have done almost zero campaign work since this started. You know, maybe a couple hours here asking my team to help draft an email late at night once I get home. But this is something that folks are, are completely focused on um, because it's so important. Yes, it is. And I thank you for you know, both your own time and for the coordinated time I think the state is putting into this. I, I hope you don't get into the situation. I hear this happening in other parts of the country where they do good effort, they bend the curve, their infection rate goes down, and then people pop up and say, oh, see, see, we, there was never any problem. <laughs> I can assure you our... Uh... Our strategy is is and has been driven by public health and by science, and that will continue to be what drives the response in Montana. Yeah. The good response is because of good work and everybody right. trying to do their part. Right. So, Rafe, thank you very much. I appreciate the it, – it's good in these times when we hear a lot of chaotic information to, to hear something – presented straight and, you know, without a lot of um, hoopla. So thank well, you very thank much. You, I appreciate you taking the time to cover it. All right. Thank you very much. Well, Dixie, that was uh, one of those interviews where I hope people got uh, some insight into how this crisis is being handled at the state level. Yes. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one thing that I found um, actually really comforting about it was um, hearing that they had been monitoring and tracking the virus from from when it first started, when uh, word first came out from China that this thing was was starting to uh, flare up. So, you know, that I think should give all Montanans a sense of comfort that you know, we have we're on we have people that are monitoring and watching for these things. Yeah, I think it, it really struck me that in Montana we had people whose job was to monitor what was going on around the world, including China, and they knew in December that there would be an issue here. Right. Right. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because it looks like that didn't happen at the federal level. Well, I, I don't know if it didn't happen as much as it was happening, but nobody was paying attention to it. Yeah, that's true. Right. And in this state, they were paying attention and they were willing to take actions early. With you know, As soon as they saw that it was necessary, that they needed to do something, it seems like um, this Governor Bullock and his team have been willing to do that in spite of, you know, any political risks or whatever, that they've been willing to do that. And so far, the results have been that Montana is, um, you know, so far, we're, uh, we're doing as well as could be expected. 
Yeah, I believe the statistic that people refer to is that Montana has one of, if not the lowest hospitalization rates in the country. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's like Rafe was saying, that people are willing to, to, um, to follow these protocols, to take care of themselves, take care of each other. And hopefully people will continue to do that, you know, and particularly when we're coming out of this is, you know, when we need to sort of remind ourselves and our friends and our loved ones that, um, you know, we still need to practice these safeguards. This thing isn't over until it's over. Yeah, precisely. And um, but I think it helps, though, to hear from somebody such as Rafe that, you know, they're thinking about all of this and looking at the details and trying to sweat the dynamics, you know, who hurts and who suffers and who gets this and who gets that and trying to make it work with the ultimate goal being reducing the number of uh, infections and reducing the number of deaths. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I feel really confident that we have the best and, you know, the, and intelligent people who are monitoring and are on top of this and taking care of it. So I think, um, you know, we should all be very grateful for that. Yes, and we don't need to be as skeptical as usual. <clears throat> well. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to laugh at some of this. Anyway, yeah. thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, we appreciate your time. And we'll be doing more of these to cover with the issues involved with the coronavirus crisis. Thanks. And All goodbye right, thank for you. now.